Good morning, Church. Um, I trust you're all well. Um, as always, it's uh, it's been a pleasure following along in your your studies, and uh, indeed, it's been a, a pleasure um, having the opportunity to prepare a, a sermon for you this morning. Um, let me again just uh, reiterate uh, to you um, our concern and uh, regular prayer for you um, as a church, particularly as you continue to. Uh, try to navigate, I guess, the whole host of challenges um, that we've that we've seen on the, the church WhatsApp group over the last few weeks, the, the continuation of, of COVID, um, the various lockdowns, uh, the health of um, Sam's mum, Shabazz and Nazreen's uh, situation, and just all the other things that are going on in the life of the church, please, please know that, that Julie and I, um, and indeed the kids, uh, we think of you regularly, we remember fondly our time in Malaysia, and um, we pray for you regularly. Um, this morning we're going to be continuing, um, as you saw in our WhatsApp group, on uh, our studies in, in Kings, and this time we're going to be looking at um, chapter 8. This is indeed is a, a, a very long passage of, of text, um, and I hope that you've had the opportunity to, to read it uh, before today, because I'm not going to, to read uh, it through uh, at least the, the 66 verses. Um, rather, I'm going to try and summarise it um, for us. Um, but I'm going to try and do that summary uh, in a chronological order um, so that we can just pick out the, the salient uh, points. Um, but before we begin, and just to give a little context, I want to, to highlight the, the depth of thought that is put into writing this passage. And the first thing to note really is the, the structure. Um, it's a structure that's similar to, to chapter 6 of 1 Kings, and um, it follows what we call a, a mirror image structure. So the, the chapter is split into seven sections, and the first three sections have the same theme as the last three sections, and then the, the middle section, the fourth section, if you like, is where the spotlight is shone, the heart of the passage, which happens to be Solomon's prayer. So we have section one, which comprises of verses one through to two. This is an introduction. It's the, the gathering of the people. Um, here the people of Israel are, are all coming together in the seventh month to, to celebrate the Levitical feast of tabernacles and the, the dedication of the temple that uh, has been built uh, during Solomon's time over that seven years. Um, to begin that dedication, we move on to, to section 2, which is verses 3 through to 13. And this section of text describes the installation of the Ark of the Covenant within the temple's Holy of Holies and the subsequent sacrifices to signal that God's presence was, was now in the new temple rather than, than in the, the old quarter of Jerusalem, the city of David. Um, the third section begins at verse 14 and ends at 21. This, this contains Solomon's first address to the gathered assembly. Um, and at this address, he, he turns to the huge crowds and he delivers a blessing. In this blessing, he acknowledges that while he put in efforts to build the temple, ultimately it was God's doing. And it all come about because of what Yahweh, God, the Lord God, the Lord Almighty had promised. So we've got the intro, 
we've got the sacrifice, we've got the, the public address, and then we get to, to section four. So those first three sections, that's the beginning of the murder. Then section four, the heart of the passage from verses 22 through to 53, it has Solomon's prayer. And there's a lot in this prayer, and that's where we're going to spend our time focusing today. But as we move on to section five, so the beginning of the second half of the mirror, the bit that shines back at sections one through to three, we, we get that mirror structure kicking in, that structure kicking in in reverse with Solomon's second address. So remember, section three, Solomon's got an address. Section five, the other side of the heart, we've got Solomon's second address. Um, and that follows his prayer. And this address was again given as a, a blessing with the overall sentiment that the people would seek to glorify God. Then you have section six, again reversing in this murder structure with further sacrifices as we follow that murder structure. And then the chapter concludes um, in verses 65 through to 66 with a summary of the field. So we go introduction, first section, um, then sacrifices, then an address, then the prayer at the heart, then an address, then further sacrifices, and then the conclusion. So I hope that at that kind of very high level, it gives you a reasonable context of what's going on. But essentially what we have is the dedication of the temple, and right at the heart of that we have Solomon's prayer, a prayer that we're going to focus in on today. And as we consider that prayer, I'd like us to pick up on, on three points that I believe will help to inform and to encourage our own prayer life. It's, it's a fundal, fundamental mark of a believer's reliance, communion and relationship with God. Yet prayer is something that we all find difficult at times to be regularly committed to. And therefore we need to regularly come to the word, come to, to scripture, come to passages like this to challenge our current state of thinking and to encourage us to take up that opportunity to speak regularly with our Heavenly Father. And in this passage from 1 Kings, from the very depths of the Old Testament writing, we have some excellent words and examples that will bring us both challenge and encouragement. Um, the three headings that I'm going to use today or this morning may seem a bit obscure, but it will be become more obvious as we go as to, to why I chose them. Now, there, there are three headings that don't almost seem complete, so, so bear with me. Um, and those three headings are this. Pray to, pray because, and pray for. Pray to, pray because, and pray for. Firstly then, pray to. Who are we to pray to? Unsurprisingly, or perhaps surprisingly, this isn't a trick question. We are to pray to our Father who is in heaven. While this answer is obvious and somewhat rudimentary, I would like us to, to consider really what this means. The privilege that it actually is and the significance of that ability to communicate with one so great. As I read Solomon's prayer uh, in detail, I guess, at the start of this week, the first eight verses from 22 through to 30 um, containing their language that really struck me. And I was challenged by Solomon's attempt to, to appreciate in his prayer the majesty and the glory of God. You know in verse 22 that Solomon moves position. So he's just given his first address and he moves before the altar of God and he looks toward the sky as he lifts up his hand. 
his his focus shifts away from the huge gathering of the the assembly before him, the the gathering of Israel, and his focus and his attention goes to communication with his heavenly Father. This isn't a a religious recital or a a show of pomp for the benefit of the crowd. It's a, a genuine move to move Solomon's posture toward God, to channel his thoughts and his words to the petitioning of God's throne. Solomon, for me, understood the preciousness of that ability to speak to God and he demonstrably inclines his heart toward God. And there's a lesson for us in that here. As we pray, as we seek to communicate with God, we too need to make him our focus. Like Solomon, our our focus and attention, the direction of our communication and our pleas should be toward God and not out to the assembled masses, in Solomon's case, or indeed our worldly comforts of today. I'm sure in in Solomon's case, had he he sought out, he would have found great encouragement and assurance from the huge crowd of people gathered around him. Yet he recognised in his incline that the one he needed to speak to as he dedicated the temple was the one who deserved all the glory. God, his heavenly father. He recognised that God was the only one capable of listening to and responding to and the only one capable of dealing with his prayer according to his sovereign will. Sharing our thoughts and our feelings whilst sometimes clearly beneficial, especially with brothers and sisters, they're not as fit as it would be to share our struggles and our pressures and our challenges with God. Petitions to people and to innate things are futile. Yet prayer to the sovereign God, the Holy One, the One who brings all things into being, is of great encouragement. And yet as we we go through life, who is our first port in the storms that we encounter? How often do we do we look to others for our understanding, to, to self-help books or to the wisdom of social media or even to, to Google before we actually go to God in prayer? As we, as we walk through life, do we prioritise our time on our communication with God? Who is it that we pray to? To God or to our self-made habits or comforts? In this section of text, not only do we see where, where Solomon directs his prayer to, but we also read of who he prays to as we begin to understand through his prayer the greatness and the glory of Yahweh, the Almighty. Verse 23, Solomon said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is none like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. In this this short verse alone, we begin to try and comprehend the greatness of the one who we are praying to. Solomon is praying to the exclusive one, the one who has no comparable, the one who is omnipresent there all the time, the one who is omniscient with all knowledge of all things, the one who is omnipotent, the one who is is all-powerful and in control of all things. And in his opening words, Solomon 
praises God. He points straight away to those characteristics in recognition of God's glory. A gesture of praise and of worship. Exactly the same format that we... um, that we would see Jesus later teach to the disciples as he teaches them how to pray. And that's the format that we too should adopt as we approach his throne. Whilst we should freely come to his throne, it should still be with reverence and awe at the awesomeness of God. And as we recognise that awesomeness, we in turn are recognising and acknowledging God's ability to listen to our hearts and to act out his will and his perfectly good judgment as he responds to our needs. In verse 27 through to to 30, uh, read this with me in your, your Bibles, Solomon goes on to describe God's unique, incredible nature. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Verse 27, behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot continue. How much less this house that I have built Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea. O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the cry of your servant, praise before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day towards this house, the place of which you have said, My name shall be there. That you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place and listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. And listen in heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. Solomon recognises the magnitude of God and the absurdity of supposing that Yahweh could indeed dwell on earth. Verse 27, for even the highest reaches of the heavens are not sufficiently vast to continue, he proclaims. Yet he also recognises the intimate personality of God, where he is able to have personal regards for his very servants. This is the God we pray to. The one who, who shoots the stars into space, the one who causes the wind to change, the tides to ebb, the world to spin, the very cosmos knitted together by his hand. And yet this is the one who we can pray to who is interested in you and in me. He wants to hear our cry. He wants to listen to our prayers. Tim Keller um, puts it much better than me in his book on prayer, which I would encourage you to get. You can get it on Amazon. You can probably get it on Lazada. It's an excellent book, definitely on Kindle. And it says this, Prayer is awe intimacy and struggle yet the way to reality there is nothing more important or harder or richer or more life altering there is absolutely nothing so great as prayer this is who we pray to we pray to the one who awes us who wants us to know him intimately the one who listens to our struggle and whom is sensitive to our cry. And there is nothing more important, harder, richer or more life-altering than praying to him. That's who to pray to. Now secondly, pray because. Pray because of what? Pray because of Jesus. 
this passage of prayer in chapter 8 and the ideas contained therein find their New Testament counterparts in the personhood of Jesus. Let me bring three examples to your attention. The, the first example is, is um, found in that, that sentence that we read verse, verse, from verse 27, the first half of that, that verse. Verse 27, it says, But God will indeed, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? The counterpart to this is, of course, found in the New Testament, and we can reference John's Gospel in verse 14 of the first chapter. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is God becoming flesh, not ridding himself of his godly deity, but at the same time taking on the fullness of humanity, and dwelling here on earth. The second example is found in verse 29 of our passage in the section where it's speaking about the temple and the people of God seeking him in prayer. In reference to this, it says this, that your eyes, that's God, may be open day and night towards this house, the place of which you have said, my name shall be there. That you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers towards this place. Jesus in the New Testament is the counterpart to this. He is the manifestation of that word name. It was in him whom the name of God was made known. John chapter 17 records Jesus in his his high priestly prayer as saying this, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of this world. In other words, this is me, God, in human form, and I am here with you dwelling on this earth. The very being of God present right here. And then the third counterpart example is the idea of the temple. Here we have Solomon dedicating the temple, the place where God's glory will dwell, the place where his name will be, where his glory will be put, but also the temple as a pointer to Jesus. Jesus, who in John 2 and verse 19 and 22, describes himself as the true and ultimate temple. When he drives out the market traders in in the temple, you remember that scene, and is confronted by the the Jews for doing the, the kicking out of the temple. It records this exchange. Jesus says, Do not make my father's house a place of trade. So the Jews said to him, what sign do um, you show us for, for, for doing these, these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it in three days? But it says, but Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. These three counterpart examples, Jesus as the one who came to dwell, Jesus as the manifestation of his name, and Jesus the true and ultimate temple are the answer to praying because of Jesus. We are to pray to God the Father because Jesus has become our mediator. If 
we were to read or listen to, to, to the Bible narrative, then by the time we'd actually finished reading or listening to the entire Bible story, we would find that Jesus is the mediator between God and ourselves. He's the go-between in God's plan. Paul captures this, this idea in his first letter to Timothy when he says this, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself up as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Also in the book of Hebrews, it captures this same idea in presenting, in presenting sorry, Jesus as our great high priest set above the household of God. And because of this, it's no surprise then that when Jesus taught his disciples to pray to the Father in his name, it says this, pray like this, our Father in heaven. In praying to the Father, Paul too adopts the protocol that befits the, the presence of great majesty. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. He is mindful, though, that this can only happen through Jesus the Son and with the enablement of the Holy Spirit. For through him, that's Jesus, we both, that's, that's Jew and Gentile, that's us, have access to the Father in one spirit, Ephesians 2 and 18. The Holy Spirit's role is to give us such affection for the Father and the Son that we're motivated to approach the Godhead in this way. You see, without Jesus, without a Redeemer, we have no access to God's throne. We have sinned and we have fallen short of God's standards. We have no recourse for our actions. We have no way of getting it right with God on our own merit. No acts of charity or good works or pleasantries have got any chance of writing our relationship with God. Our only conduit to him is through Jesus, through acknowledging him as our saviour, through asking him for forgiveness and through having faith in him to mediate on our behalf. Pray to the Father. Pray because you're able to through Jesus. The one who gave himself as a ransom on our behalf for all of mankind. What could be of greater encouragement to pray to God than because of what Jesus has done on our behalf? It would be the same as refusing the best gift ever, only made accessible to you because of someone, because of what someone else had done on your behalf. How likely would you be to do that? And yet we are prone to do it with prayer. Take heed. Friends, of the pointers to Jesus in Solomon's prayer, pray to the Father. Pray because of Jesus. Pray to, pray because, and now pray for. What do we pray for? Well, the next section of Solomon's prayers from, from, from verses 31 through to 51 consists of things that were pertinent to the needs of the time. And like all things in this chapter, it's written in a very considered structure. You will notice that the prayer contains petitions amounting to the number of seven. The first petition contains oaths sworn before the altar. The second uh, petition, um, a prayer for defeat by an enemy. The third, uh, prayers for drought. The fourth, prayers for famine and pestilence. The, the fifth petition is a prayer for the needs of a foreigner in the land. 
the sixth petition, a prayer for going into battle, and, and finally the seventh prayer, a prayer for captivity. The number seven is significant throughout the Old Testament. We see it referenced frequently. And it seems to be that this signifies completeness or fulfillment or perfection. Remember the context of this just in this very chapter. The number seven has already cropped up a number of times. We have the the dedication of the temple, uh, which took seven years to build, occurring in the seventh month. And the feast of tabernacles that happened at the dedication of the temple lasted seven days. So is it really a surprise that we have then seven petitions that are, are probably meant to represent all possible situations that the people would have to, to call forth in prayers for, for individuals and for the nation. All contingencies, if you like, are covered by these seven petitions that Solomon speaks. And so when we think about what to pray for, I think the first lesson for us is this, and it may seem rather obvious, but is that we would come before God to pray for all things. We shouldn't just petition his throne for the things that we struggle with. We shouldn't just petition his throne when we can't fix something under our own capacity. We shouldn't just petition his throne when we want something that feels out of reach. No, rather we should petition him for all things, giving him praise and thanks for all the things that we have, praying to him to help with all of our issues, big and small. We need to recognise that ultimately that all the things that we have, all the things that we do and all the things that we want are at his mercy, grace and determination. And from the seven petitions we we notice another interesting piece. Plus two of the examples in the seven petitions concern individuals and the rest of the the examples concern the nation. Three of the examples actually carry the theme of the need for forgiveness and restoration. In his final petition in verse 46, Solomon actually begins with an acknowledgement that there is no one who does not sin and goes on to predict the inevitable. What hope, he says, is there for a dynasty of fallible kings that would follow me who would actually live as God requires and not end up being taken captive by a foreign enemy? Solomon knows that there is not that hope. But Solomon holds to the promise that if one is to repent with all their heart and with all their soul, then God would hear their plea and grant compassion on them. The theme of regularly coming to God's throne to ask for forgiveness is, of course, not something unfamiliar to us. Indeed, in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus tells us to ask our Heavenly Father to to forgive us our debts or our sins, as it says in Luke. This suggests that we'll never reach perfection in this life, but that we will always have debts demanding God's forgiveness. It's no surprise there, but it also raises a practical question. If I'm a Christian who's been justified through faith, then hasn't God already forgiven all of my sins, past, present and future? And if so, why do I need to keep on asking for forgiveness? Wouldn't that imply that I doubted God's promise? 
clearly Jesus wouldn't have taught us to pray in a way that makes us doubt our Heavenly Father. How, though, do we relate to the it-is-finished truth of justification with our ongoing responsibility to ask for forgiveness? The reason that we, we pray for our Heavenly Father to forgive our debts is not because we've, we've lost our state of grace and need to be resaved. It's not that at all. Justification is permanent. Rather, confessing our sin helps to remind us that there is more to salvation than being justified. Salvation also involves being sanctified and treated as sons and daughters. As a judge, God no longer sees our sin because his, his righteous verdict has removed all condemnation. That's explicit. It's in Romans 8 and verse 1. But as a father, he's quite aware of our remaining sin and he wants us to be aware of that too so that we can fight it, so that we can deal with it and that we can ask him to forgive us for it. But we must also realise that God sees our sins as a loving father, not as an angry critic. That's how the Lord prayer begins. It doesn't begin our judge, but it begins our Father. We pray this petition from inside the family of God, not from the outside trying to get back in. It's true that the normal way of receiving forgiveness is through confessing and asking. And yet, at least when it comes to specific sins, it's virtually certain we'll all die with unconfessed sin, simply because there are so many sins that we are unaware of. There are sins of commission, doing things that we're not supposed to, and things sins of omission, doing things that we should, not doing things, the things that we should. Paul, for instance, knew that even though he wasn't conscious of any hidden sin in his life, that didn't make him innocent. You might think that would make him fearful of facing God and death, but Paul didn't. Instead of condemnation, Paul expected commendation because he knew that beneath all of his incomplete confession and imperfect repentance, there was a father-son relationship between him and God built on the solid foundation of Jesus' blood and righteousness. When my children tell me that they've done something wrong or indeed when I know that they've done wrong but they don't confess their sin I don't stop loving them now if I can love my children in that way as a sinful being with inherently sinful children how much more does God love us as a father who has given his only son to die on the cross to forgive our sins completely and who has justified us through Jesus, how much more is that relationship between the father and the son and between us when we pray to him to ask for forgiveness? We've got that confidence right, even that with all these sins that have flown under the radar, that even when we die, that we would be ushered straight into the presence of Jesus. And every Christian can have that confidence, praying, Father, forgive us our debts, 
isn't just a duty we have as sinners, but it's a privilege that we have as sons and daughters. It doesn't simply remind us that we all sin. It assures us that our Father is eager to forgive. He looks for opportunities to show mercy. And that's why he gladly forgives our debts time and time again. Let that be an encouragement to you. We pray to our Father. We pray because of Jesus, the mediator who has made the relationship between us and the Father possible. And we are to pray for all circumstances in our lives, regularly asking for his forgiveness as part of our sanctification. Because we pray to our Father from inside the family, not from outside trying to get in. Brothers and sisters, friends, family in Johor, may that be an encouragement to you this morning as you consider the prayer of Solomon that we've read in this chapter in Kings. I'm just going to close now by by praying for us and then uh, I I wish you a, a good week ahead. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, word that is um, so well structured in challenging us and encouraging us and speaking to our hearts. And Father, we just ask for forgiveness for all the times that we fall so short of your standards. And Lord, we know that you um, forgive us freely. Lord, where our sin prevails, we know that your grace is greater. And we just thank you for that mercy and that compassion and that love that you have bestowed upon us. And Father, we just pray that we would feel inspired by that, that, that demonstration of love and mercy and kindness and grace to come to you often, to pray and to have that relationship with our Father made possible because of Jesus and that we would do it in all circumstances, confessing our sins and praising your name and listening to your word and to your heart. Lord, be with us this week, I pray. Be with our, our family, with, with Shabazz and Nazarene as they navigate the next steps with with um, Sam's mom in Hong Kong as she seeks to, to recover for her illness. Lord, we pray for her and for the family and indeed for everyone that's uh, in Johor just now. Lord, we just pray that your your hand would be upon them, that your your grace would be mercifully shown to them, Lord. We, we thank you for, for everyone and we acknowledge the, the goodness and the greatness of your son this morning. In your precious son's name. Amen. Well, um, it's been a pleasure once more, um, and I hope that you have a, a great week ahead. Take care.